my father was a pathology professor, so I guess lecturers came naturally to him. Uh, at the dining room table, we knew that, um, that if he started speaking on something, it probably was gonna continue <clears throat> until well past dessert. Uh, fortunately for us, he spoke very slowly and deliberately with lots of pauses between phrases. So we could usually get some dining room uh, conversation going during those pauses, you know, please pass the mashed potatoes, you know, how was your day, things like that. I was fairly well behaved as a child and, and didn't get in trouble that often, uh, but to the extent that I was uh, uh, deterred by discipline, it was really my father's lectures more than anything else uh, that deterred me. It's, uh, it's not that these were fiery sermons on good and evil, Quite the contrary, they were, um, they were methodical discourses on the moral consequences of, of our behavior. And they were usually pretty long. In fact, I remember once as a child, when my father started a, a lecture for some errant way of mine, I, I, I just asked him, you know, can I get a spanking instead? <laughs> I, I figured in the end it would be less painful. He, did, he didn't really warm up to that suggestion. Um, it wasn't just the, um, the length, uh, the long and the boring nature of his lectures, but they tended to be thematically repetitive. Um, uh, he would say a lot of the same things over and over again. Uh, at one point, when I was a teenager, I suggested to him that we, that we number his lectures sort of like the hymnal, and that way he could just you know, call out the number and it would save us all a bit of time. Again, he didn't really warm up to that suggestion. As I've gotten older though, I notice that I also am repeating things that I've already said to my children, uh, and at this point it's not because I've forgotten that I've said them before, at least I don't think so. Um, it's because important things are worth repetition. And uh, in that, I and my father are in good company with Jesus. In this passage, uh, Jesus repeats certain phrases, words, core concepts a number of times. In these uh, 12 verses, you know, including the extra ones that were left out of the lectionary, bread is mentioned seven times. Life or live, another seven times. The Father, God the Father, six times. The phrase came down from heaven five times comes to me five times, believe or not believe four times, and raise him up on the last day three times. We won't go into all of these themes this morning. Uh, you'll be thankful to hear. Um, we talked uh, last Sunday quite a bit about bread, so we'll skip that off. Life is a key concept here, which uh, Lord willing, uh, we'll talk more about um, next Sunday. Uh, but he does, uh, Jesus talks about the bread of life, living bread, eternal life, live forever. Raise him up on the last day is a, is a reference to the first resurrection mentioned in Revelation 20, verses four through six. In fact, the Greek word anastaso, which is, which is translated raise up in this passage, uh, sounds very much like the other Greek word anastasis, which means resurrection. And then, of course, the very last verse, life of the world, 
This gives Christ's sacrifice cosmic significance. Think about that. Not just the life of individuals, but his flesh given for the life of the world. Came down from heaven is another key phrase five times mentioned in these 12 verses. Uh, this is really a claim of divinity. Whether his audience fully appreciated that or not, they certainly realized that he was making a divine connection and they grumbled about it. As they did in Nazareth, it was very difficult for them to see one of their own as having actually come down from heaven, having a connection with God that was different uh, than their connection. Uh, they referred to him as the son of Joseph, which at least was not as diminished, demeaning as calling him the son of Mary as they did in Nazareth, as we, uh, as we read in Mark chapter 6 uh, uh, some Sundays ago. Uh, whose father and mother we know. Uh, they knew his father and mother, but they didn't know him. Jesus came down from heaven, he says, that he should do the will of him who sent, do the will of him who sent me, he said, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day, and that everyone who looks on the Son and believes him should have eternal life. Jesus came to give his flesh for the life of the world as an atoning sacrifice. As we read in Ephesians chapter five, just a moment ago, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. This passage also talks about the interplay between election and faith, divine initiative and human response. Jesus said, whoever believes in me has eternal life, whoever. And yet, in the same paragraph, he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. There's this sense that Faith is, is, is the active ingredient, but faith requires first initiative on God's part to draw us to him. Hearing and learning are key. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. These are the means by which we come to believe. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in us that we can hear and that we can learn from God the Father. The Old Testament reading from this morning, this story of Elijah, is a, is a beautiful picture of that interplay between divine initiative and human response. Uh, and and this, is a, this is an illustration, means this is a real story. It really happened to Elijah, just as it says. Um, it's not an allegory, something that we're to take to mean something different than what it says. But it's, I think, a good illustration of this interplay between God drawing and, and us believing. I'll read that again uh, briefly, but you can read along um, in, your, in your insert. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, it is enough. Now, O Lord, take my life, for I'm no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank 
and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. The word of the Lord. Elijah, at the beginning of this story, is at the absolute end of himself. He's a picture of discouragement, depression, and fatigue. He lacked both the will and the ability to come to God. All he wanted to do at that point was to be left alone and die. Yet God comes to him and provides both enablement and direction. He sends an angel to feed him, give him food, water, rest. Twice he does that. The psalm that we read this morning, Psalm 34, sounds like it was almost written for Elijah personally. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. When Elijah wanted nothing more than to die, he tasted and saw that the Lord was good. The Lord doesn't just give Elijah food, water, and rest. He also sends him on a journey. He gives him direction. A journey through the wilderness to Horeb, the Mount of God. That is Mount Sinai, where the law was given, where God met with Moses in a special way, where Moses saw God face to face and lived. The purpose of this journey, of course, was to meet with God, to meet with God in a way that Elijah had never met with him before. The journey is too great for you, the angel said. Without God's sustenance, this journey was too great. Now, according to Google Maps, uh, the distance between Beersheba, where, uh, where, uh, where Elijah was, and Mount Sinai is 260 miles, which doesn't seem that hard to, to cross in, in 40 days. It's about six and a half miles a day. Um, even if it was rough going, I think I could do that. Uh, but think, I think God had more in mind than just getting from point A to point B. There was a journey of spiritual preparation as well as the physical journey that he had in mind. This 40 days and 40 nights is also very symbolic. Uh, if you think about back, you know, there's a hyperlink back to the flood where it rained 40 days and 40 nights, a really long time. The Israelites were in the wilderness 40 years. And a particular reference here, I think, is to Moses on Mount Sinai when he went up to receive the Ten Commandments. He was 40 days and 40 nights. According to Exodus uh, 34:28, he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote the tablets, wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. I think this is designed to help us think of that just as Moses was sustained on the mountain by God without food or water, so Elijah was going to be sustained in the wilderness on his way to receive a word from God. Of course, this 40 days and 40 nights also helps us to look forward to Jesus' 40 days and 40 nights of temptation in the wilderness. This was a time of testing, a time of spiritual development and growth for Elijah. This is a journey, though, that Elijah never would have or could have set out on his own. God prompted and provided. Elijah responded and received. Elijah was not in a frame of mind to want to go to God, Mount Sinai or anywhere else. 
All he wanted to do was die. Yet he responded to God's prompting and to his provision. That's the same way here with God drawing us and yet us responding in faith. So, some implications uh, from the words of Jesus. First of all, if you've trusted Jesus, it's because the Father drew you to him. Men are grievously disinclined to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, Spurgeon writes. Their unwillingness is so great that it amounts to an inability of this sort, that as there are none so deaf as those that will not hear and none so blind as those that will not see, so there are none so unable as those who are unwilling. And the Savior thus puts it, no man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. We are not able on our own to come to God. If you've trusted in Jesus, it's because the Father drew you, because a divine work was initiated in your heart that you responded to in faith, because you did not <clears throat> create this new life within you. You can neither grow it by yourself nor destroy it. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out, Jesus says. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. That life that's within you is, is not your own. It was put there by God. It cannot be extinguished. Second, our part as believers is, is not to convince people of the truth, but to help them hear the Father and be taught by him. Think about that for a moment. That has pretty deep implications and should shape our understanding of the practice of personal evangelism as well as apologetics. My job up here is not to convince you of the truth, but to help you to listen to the Father and to learn from him. And third, if you're not sure you believe or not sure you believe yet, don't worry. You don't have to understand everything to believe. When you get bread, Spurgeon wrote, you put it in your mouth, you eat it, and you let it go down into yourself. You may not know much about the processes that are going on within you, and you need not want to know. If you do not understand anything about them, the bread will feed you just as well. Now in that way, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, take the Lord Jesus Christ into you spiritually and feed on him. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to understand the process. Uh, to have it work. Simply come to Jesus. Your part is to listen, to learn from the Father, and then simply come to Jesus. Now what does it mean to come to Jesus? I like again Spurgeon's response. This expression, coming to Jesus, is so simple that I do not know how to make it any plainer. I'm afraid that if I were to try to explain it, I might be like Thomas Scott when he wrote his notes to Bunyan's Pilgrim, Pilgrim's Progress. Going around his parish, he found a woman who had the Pilgrim's Progress with his notes. My good woman, he asked, do you understand the Pilgrim's Progress? Yes, Mr. Scott, I understand the Pilgrim's Progress very well, and I hope that one day I may be able to understand your explanation of it. <laughs> I hope that you are able to understand and respond to the simple words of Jesus, even if my explanation of them has not been so easy to understand. Amen. Let us come to Jesus now as we declare together the words of the Nicene Creed, followed by the prayer, and then coming to the table in communion.